Welcome to Wonks and War Rooms, where political communication theory meets on-the-ground strategy. I'm your host, Elizabeth Dubois, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Ottawa. Today, we're going to be talking about the two-step flow hypothesis, and my guest is Nick Switolsky. Nick, can you tell us a little bit about your background in political communication? Sure. Okay. So my name is Nick Switelsky. I, uh, um, in my everyday life, I'm a government relations professional working with a post-secondary institution. But otherwise, in my in my private life, so I still maintain a number of campaign-related ventures. And um, for about 10 years of my life there, I was in Parliament Hill in various capacities at a member's office and a minister's office um, up until 2015. That included being the director of issues management and parliamentary affairs for Rana Ambrose, uh, who went on to be the interim leader of the Conservative Party. And I was at that time when I was working with her, the Minister of Health. Um, I managed a number of campaigns in the GTA. I've worked with uh, two leadership candidates for the Federal Conservative Party, uh, worked in different provinces and territories. And so, yeah, that's more or less my CV in a nutshell. All right. So the two-step flow hypothesis is a media effects theory. It basically says that instead of mass media and mainstream news being able to directly affect the general public, they kind of do so via these opinion leaders who serve as a bit of a bridge between that news outlet and the general public. Opinion leaders care a ton about a particular issue, say it's Canadian politics. They are going to get all kinds of information from wherever they can and really inform themselves. And then they will share pertinent information with their friends and family and other everyday associates. Those people are people who probably don't care quite so much about politics, but they do care what their friends think and they do care what their friends Uh, say is an important issue. And so that's the way that the mainstream media would have an impact on the general public. Okay. Now, when we think about the way politics works, we know that it's not just the public and the media. There's a bunch of different uh, players that come in. And so what I'm wondering is whether or not this hypothesis makes sense for you. Do you see these ideas of opinion leaders being important mediators in the work that you've done? I mean, to a certain degree, like when you say opinion leader, I mean, I almost immediately go to the pundits, but that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about individuals in a community who consume a lot of news. Now, I mean, I'm trying to differentiate an opinion leader between everyone who watches the news. So I'm not an opinion leader just because I watch the news, right? Correct. You need to be not only somebody who watches the news or consumes other political information, you need to also be somebody who's then willing to share that information with their friends and family. Like we know the, you know, don't talk about politics at dinner. It's going to create too much of a stir kind of, of mentality uh, or the politeness approach of, well, I don't want to rock the boat. Uh, so there are people who are going to choose not to try and influence their friends and family. We're looking at the opinion leaders as the ones who both have the information and are willing to share it. Okay. So I guess uh, this sort of a concept really depends at the time in which we're talking about it. So we're talking um, in between elections when you have uh, governments established and you have opposition parties trying to get an edge and you have uh, ministers and government trying to oftentimes defend or push out their own message. Um, Both are tending to speak to their base and speak to the individuals whose mind can be changed. And that often involves trying to negotiate directly with the media themselves. Uh, because the media in, in, in broad terms decides, they decide the agenda. They decide what we're going to be talking about that day. 
Uh, I've heard one commentator refer to them as like the boards in a hockey game, right? You can try arguing against them all you want. At the end of the day, they're going to say, we're arguing here. What's your different angle? Is it important? Do you feel it's important? Do you feel it's not important? And how does your party feel about it? And what would they do differently if they feel that it's not a good issue to be talking about? So oftentimes in those scenarios, we're trying to issue manage our way out of them or trying to change the channel to something we want to talk about. And the idea behind that is we have our key messages, we have our main message, and we're talking to our base, and we're trying to get accessible voters in a position where they could see themselves voting for us on election day. When it comes to an actual campaign, we're targeting a very specific subset of individuals, our base and those who we view as um, being accessible voters. Um, There was a particularly um, gifted strategist in the Harper PMO in our um, early to mid-mandate named Patrick Mutar, who's gone out to do bigger and better things. But he created these um, concepts, these um, individual pictures, if you will, of the average conservative voter in an urban area and a uh, suburban area and a rural area and, you know, average liberal voters, et cetera, as an idea of here's your average conservative voter. Here's John. You know, he's a small business owner. He's concerned about this issue and that issue. So when you run into John, you should talk about this issue or that issue. You're trying to really flick the channel to issues that are your party's strong in and the other party's weak in in order to get that vote. Um, so have we really focused on opinion leaders in this respect? I wouldn't say so in particular when you're talking about a political narrative because you would almost have to fashion your, um, your medium to speak directly to those individuals outside of your traditional media channels. I mean, when you're talking about social media, you've got, you know, the actual key message encapsulated within a tweet or a Facebook post. So the voter can actually read it directly from the political type, as opposed to the media where it's put through that medium. And, but all of this is scattershot. I mean, we can talk about advertisements. We can talk about geotargeting. Well, let's talk for just a second about those social media posts that you're, you're mentioning. Is there ever a thought of we want to use the network that these social media create? And so it's not just about getting your kind of I'm pretty sure they're going to vote for me anyway, secure voter to be reminded of why they're voting for you, but also to get them to try and pull in people who are like them that might not be certain yet. So I think maybe the best analog I could use for that would be a caucus endorsement or a previous candidate or previous leaders endorsement, right? Because when you're talking about a political bubble, um, you're looking for an opinion leader, not just in terms of someone who's respected in a small social circle, because that's kind of the concept you fed me with initially is that, you know, you have one person in like a group of 30 who's watching the news and then go and talking to his friends or family about it. But that's often not what political types, especially at the federal level, are looking for. Maybe at the municipal level, it's a bit different. But we're talking federal. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands, no millions of of voters out there. So it's it's almost too granular to go to that level. But we do sometimes rely on, and this can be for better or worse, I have my views on it, uh, individuals who we feel may carry some weight. For example, the Tories are in a leadership race right now. And uh, one campaign in particular has chosen to focus very heavily on caucus endorsements. Um, and a, the idea behind that is, well, you know, if MP from riding X says you should vote for this guy or gal, then every, every eligible conservative voter in that riding will do so. Um, can it hurt to do that? What I've seen on the ground? No. Um, I've also seen and experienced they shouldn't really pay a lot of time, uh, spend a lot of time doing it. 
because at the end of the day, it doesn't really translate to votes. Caucus members and previous candidates have one vote. Um, they may have received the votes of individuals in the riding in the last election, or however many long, and have supporters in the riding, but they're all, uh, they all hold various different views themselves. Uh, in the last provincial uh, PC leadership race, we saw Doug Ford go up against Christine Elliott, uh, two, two major contenders in that race. And Christine Elliott had almost all of the PC caucus behind her. I think Doug had a small handful. I think he had two, maybe three, but I was, well, it was very, very small. And he ended up winning. I mean, like at the end of the day, you're relying on these, I'll take your term, opinion leaders to deliver votes for you. It's almost like a cop-out. I don't want to do the hard work of making phone calls and knocking on doors and running a campaign because that, that guy's going to do it for me. And I've seen many campaigns fail from that. You know, you have a ton of people who enter in your office being green campaigns saying, you know what, I want to help you out on strategy. I can deliver this. I can deliver that. Okay, well, show me the list. Show me the people. Are they coming here? Where are they going? Like, I'll make you a poll captain, sure. But I'm not going to trust that you're going to be the one to actually run the campaign in this, in this, in this group that you've described to me. For um, sure. So it's interesting because we kind of think about opinion leaders as this like really specific community based version of influence. Right. And so the idea behind opinion leaders at that community level is they're using social pressure and social support to influence their friends and family uh, and other acquaintances. And so, you know, it's people that have shared experiences. There might be a fear of being kicked out of that community and not having that sense of belonging anymore. If you do the opposite of what this opinion leader has said, but that's pretty, that's pretty much dependent on people's vision of their everyday life. The kind of influence you were just talking about is, is kind of a step up if we're having, you know, a ladder of influence, right? The step up is like, these are leaders in my community that I don't hang out with on a day-to-day basis, but I care to some degree what they think. And I kind of take cues from them. And then we can go kind of even further up the ladder to celebrities or federal politicians or other people who aren't even based in your community at all, but somehow you feel connected or you care somewhat about their views. And I think that's really important to, to start to tease apart the different kinds of influence that show up because I think the mechanism you use to convince your friends or family to go vote is probably different than the way you do it. If you are endorsing a candidate because you yourself had gotten votes at some point. Does that track? Yeah, I mean, I think the practical utility um, challenge we're running into here when I'm trying to describe the way you operate when you're actually in government or walk, running a national campaign, disclaimer, I've never run a national campaign, but involved in many, but at the local level, <clears throat> you run into the, 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 the sheer volume of individuals are trying to contact. And it's almost too granular to say, okay, well, let's contact every uh, you know, group leader, if you even had a list of those, because that's what it boils down to, right? Do you have the data and uh, contact details and, you know, weigh it, like who's in their groups? You don't have that at the federal level. Um, I don't know if you would have that at any level. But um, one example that I could use, I think, that I think meets up directly with what you're talking about here is um, a nomination race um, in, a, in a riding. And this can be for any party. Uh, where your primary goal is to sell memberships. I mean, in the Conservative Party, that involves selling them for about, uh, I think it's 15 bucks a year now. And that just affords you the opportunity to be involved with the party at the local level, most particularly have a vote in a uh, candidate nomination process to choose who's going to be the candidate in that area, or in the case we're in right now, uh, choose the next leader of the party itself. 
Uh, so when you're selling memberships, there's a number of ways you can do that. But um, ridings and even safe ridings, like I live in the riding of Niagara West, and we had a um, we had a nomination race here uh, in which a good friend of mine, Sam Oosterhoff, is now our uh, member of provincial parliament. Uh, but he had to run and win against uh, several other challengers. Uh, the other major one of which uh, was named Rick Dykstra, as a former parliamentarian and at the time president of the PC party. Um, he's uh, he's been accused of a number of things afterwards, so he's disappeared off the public off of the uh, public stage. But at that time, he was still a relatively relatively prominent figure and had really good organization. Now, this is a very very safe conservative riding. It's a relatively rural area, a lot of small business owners. And so the race to win this seat um, with these two individuals who sold a, what, what's viewed as a lot of memberships, uh, Sam sold roughly 1,200, uh, Rick sold roughly 2,000, uh, and it came down to who can get their vote out most effectively. Um, now, selling these memberships, because, you know, 1,200, 2,000, that's a relatively small vote share when we're talking about um, a provincial seat or a federal seat. That's what it comes down to when we're talking about nominations because it's a, a family of individuals, the conservative membership holding base uh, in that riding gets to choose these things. So you have to find, okay, who am I going to sell memberships to? And the strategies you use for that is, okay, well, let's go with, start with your friends, uh, friends, associates, and neighbors, your fan model. Uh, so, you know, walk down your street, chat with your family, say, you know, hey, how's Uncle Ned doing? He's still living, you know, next door. I need him and his kids. I got to sell his memberships. And then you'll do a few things called hosting little. So this is a strategy that I've used a number of times. They're called hosting a coffee party. You literally just get a friend of yours or an associate or a neighbor to say, hey, would you mind doing me a big favor? I appreciate the bottom membership email all your friends who live in the area, can you just have them over and say, hey, you know, my neighbor, my friend is running for office. He just wants a chance to meet you and just hear about his case. Would you mind just, uh, come on, mom, bye. I've got some pot of coffee on and just, you know, meeting them and saying hello. And then they show up and then you are the candidate or whomever else is running shows up and say, listen, I'm doing this. And the other thing, you give your spiel. And then afterward, almost all of them will buy membership. So that is kind of the sort of thing that you were talking about right there. But it comes into play when you're at a very granular level talking about federal or even provincial politics. I presume at the municipal level has a certain degree too, because we're talking the ward level. Yeah, that's a really great example. It really illustrates the two-step flow hypothesis and the role of opinion leaders exceptionally well. And so you're saying at the granular level, it works because you're dealing with a small enough population that you can create good strategy around that kind of personal influence mechanism. When we're looking at larger populations, bigger elections, you develop different strategies. And so one of the things you've kind of mentioned briefly in, in this conversation so far is the idea of, of what data you can get. Um, so we've got, yeah. we've got data that comes from Elections Canada and then on election day gets updated with whether or not you've actually voted to a certain extent before. But really the, the major work of that is election day. There's yeah. also all of the work that's been done before that to say, here's a mail out. Maybe she'll respond to the mail out. Presumably there's also email versions of that and other digital versions where I could sign up on the website, yeah. give new info. Cool. So you've got this chunk of information and I don't, I don't, we're not going Cambridge Analytica. I don't want to talk about the, no, the no, ethics. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, but what I do want to do is just, ask you about one update to the two-step flow hypothesis that some people have been posing, and that is a version of a one-step 
hypothesis here. And what they say is because we can get so much data about people, we kind of eliminate the need for that personal influence. We kind of eliminate the need to have a mediator who cares a bunch about the information, who's then going to do the work to make it relevant to the particular other people, right? You don't need somebody who's going to apply social pressure and social support and be like, oh, well, if you don't vote, like all of my friends vote, I don't know how you could be my friend if you're not going to go vote. You know, you don't need that because instead parties could create things that are so targeted to each individual that they already feel like it's personal. They don't need that extra sense of community pressure to do it. Does that make any sense to you? Uh, I mean, yes and no. So I guess I would take issue with the term you use, which is need, right? Because need presupposes that the initial um, scenario of two-step method was the need was crucial. that You had to have an opinion leader in order for political messaging or any kind of strategy to be effective. You needed opinion leaders. I I disagree with that concept. I think they exist, but I don't know if they fulfill a particular need. Mm -hmm. Um, When you get to the granular level, like at perhaps uh, 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 nomination contest levels, uh, the example I used earlier, um, I would argue that, I mean, so there's weaknesses here. The need, I think, exists still for those sort of opinion leaders and, um, and and social pressures in order to sell memberships because that's all about direct voter contact. Social media has not yet reached the level where you could sell a thousand memberships at a riding level. There's a very particular kind of person, uh, I think for all parties, uh, where you have to establish that kind of personal contact with real people in order to get that kind of a relationship going on that relatively small scale. Like ridings are dealing with 130 some thousand people. Um, and within that very large subset, you're looking for a thousand or fewer uh, who you might be able to sell something to uh, or get in, getting energized and engaged in a very specific help me win this nomination. So social media has its weaknesses, the first of all, the first of which is that uh, it doesn't really have the targeting capacities of what it would need for that sort of a thing. Like you know, if I am running for a nomination in Niagara West, I would be able to geotarget the riding in terms of uh, Facebook or other social media to say, hey, Nick's running. Uh, But there really isn't much else that you could use on it to hit people. Like maybe you could find um, like a fan group Mm -hmm. uh, on uh, groups of people who say, you know, I, I subscribe to this. But even that, like Facebook will tell you this will go out to 25 people but I don't even think they tell you the members of the group anymore because there's been privacy concerns, right? So there are severe limitations on what you can do. And it doesn't really allow you the same kind of direct voter contact that you need in order to succeed at that really ground level um, politicking. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I hear what you're saying, the opinion leader thing. Uh, I think it is very important at the granular level. I'm not sure I'm with you on uh, on the higher tier. All right. That makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Do you think that the tech might develop and our our capacity to collect and analyze data could develop to the point where that could be useful? Or do you think, no, you still need those those humans on the ground? So it's a a good question, because I have actually uh, jousted with individuals on this in the midst of a campaign. It's more of a it's more of a conceptual thing. Mm -hmm. So in the number of nominations that I've helped with, and in a number of campaigns I've worked on, 
The social thing is very new and exciting. And it gives you a lot of data in a really cool heads-up display where you can see, oh, look how many clicks I've got, or oh, look how many impressions, this, that, and the other thing. And it tells you a lot of numbers. But what it doesn't tell me is John Smith, who lives at 123 Fake Street, is the one who hit the like button. Mm-hmm. No. It, like, that, so you have to see this data, and then you have to translate it into a very, um, into a very succinct set of information that you can use to get your vote out. Because, I mean, you can buy all the ads you want, right? You can spend millions, tens of millions of dollars on ads. It doesn't tell you who's looking at them. Uh, and it doesn't tell you the personal information of who's looking at them. Like, I need your name and address. That's all I need <laughs> in order to get you out and determine you can vote. Because that's the other thing, too. Like, nothing, like, I, I, there's no guarantee that what's looking at this tweet or this, or this Facebook posting is even a real person or a real voter, or lives in my writing. So I need to know all of those three things in order to determine what, what I'm, what, how I'm gonna use that information, because otherwise it's kind of useless. So even if, like I shouldn't say even if, because I'm pretty certain I know the answer to this point, uh, I don't think people want to get to the point where um, their social media interactions are able to be boiled down by political parties to where they live. I don't think people want that. And political parties, I think, might even not be the uh, the worst offenders. I don't think they want companies knowing that. I don't think they want states knowing that. I don't think they want pretty much anyone knowing that. Yeah, there's uh, some pretty pretty clear evidence in, in polling and survey research in Canada that says Canadians are not really down for that. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of conversations about privacy legislation and how political parties don't actually have to follow the rules companies have to follow. But... Uh, at well, the end of the day, what happens to the actors that write the laws, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I wonder why. Ooh. I have one more question for you. Something that you hear a lot when you talk to politicians and say, you know, how can I support you? What can I do? They say, go door knocking, go door knocking in your community. And the two step flow hypothesis would sort of suggest that the in your community bit is really important. Going door to door. And seeing neighbors who might recognize you from walking your dog or dropping your kids off at school or going to the same gym, there's something about that recognition that matters from the perspective of this hypothesis. Do you think that makes sense or really is the value of door knocking just any human getting to the door? If it does, it's hard to qualify. How do I prove that? How do I replicate these conditions with a stranger? So that's the danger number one. And it's, and it's something that's present throughout political campaigning across the board. How do I know that this particular strategy worked in this writing versus an entirely separate one? Because you can never replicate those conditions. You'll have an entirely separate national message. You'll have an entirely separate uh, candidate. It's very difficult to replicate the conditions to demonstrate that this is in fact a thing. But uh, what I can say, and I'll give you a particular example is candidate data that is gathered by the very specific political candidate who is stumping for votes is viewed by um, campaign staff as less valuable uh, than those that than data that is collected by volunteers. I'll tell you why. If I'm running for you know whatever parliamentary and I knock on your door and I say, Doc, I want your vote. You're going to vote for me, and you say, Well, I'm undecided, or yes or no. You know. The reality is that you're looking me in the face. So you want to be polite. Canadians are polite. It doesn't matter where you are in the country. Canadians are generally polite. You are not going to tell me to get off your lawn. But 
if you are talking to a 20 year old canvasser who's like, oh yeah, can he, can he, can he have your vote? You're like, get off my lawn, kid. I'm not talking to that jerk. You are much more likely to be honest about your negative views with canvassers who aren't the candidate than you are with the candidate him or herself, much more likely. And that's borne out time and time again. When I have some candidate out to a particular area, I'm like, no, let's try it again with a volunteer and always get better data. That's super interesting. The socially desirable response bias that, you know, in academia, we talk about that all the time impacting how we design surveys, but to see that impacting how you decide where to send different canvassers is a, is a nice tangible example. Thank you. All right. I want to end it off with just a a real quick quiz. Can you tell me what the two-step flow hypothesis is? Oh God. That's uh, the opinion leaders. Um, uh, well, I mean, come on. We're talking about opinion leaders. We're talking about them getting their information from mainstream media and actually feeding that to an audience that is not as politically engaged as they are. Yeah, perfect. A plus. Good. See, look at that. I learned something. You're they, a good prop. Thank you, Nick. This was awesome. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. That was the episode on the two-step flow hypothesis with my guest, Nick Swatelsky, who is a veteran campaigner and former political staffer. If you'd like more information about the two-step flow hypothesis, personal influence, or the other things we talked about today, check the show notes or head over to paulcomtech.ca.